I have hanging in my office a, a portrait of a man who's not very attractive, actually, and that's what his future father-in-law told him. He said, I'm not inclined to give my daughter's hand to you because you are, are the most unattractive man I've ever known. <laughs> but he was an astounding preacher, Dr. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, and for 10 years he was the pastor of First Pres Columbia in the 1840s and then was the pastor of First Pres New Orleans for over 50 years. But it was his regular practice, Dr. Palmer, when he was the pastor of First Pres Columbia in the 1840s, for First Pres to hold three worship services, three distinct worship services, a morning, an afternoon, and an evening. And Palmer preached at all three of them every week. And so I, that, that gives me hope and courage because today will be the dreaded trifecta here as well. Some of you will, will get to hear me or have to hear me three times this morning, then this afternoon as we preach the gospel and preach the word at our beloved Joanne Harris's funeral, and then this evening as we close out the Lord's Day. So if you're thinking about halfway through the third sermon this evening, this guy is driving me crazy. I've been listening to him all day long. Just remember, our sturdy forefathers listened to three sermons, and I know what your argument is going to be, but those were preached by Benjamin Palmer, Carl. But they listened to three sermons every Sunday of their lives. So let's gird up our lo the loins of our mind now. I've spoken of my own conversion before, a conversion from death to life, out of darkness into light, out of especially unbelief, error, and ignorance to saving faith. My conversion centered around being brought out of erroneous, even heretical beliefs about Jesus Christ. On Memorial Day, Monday, May 26, 1980, Sandy and I were newlyweds and we had a plan that day because we were both off work to go to the lake and go water skiing with friends. But I had two friends who I'll forever be thankful to, Shane and Lumpy. And Shane and Lumpy kept pestering me saying, Carl, we're starting this Bible study. It was on the north side of Oklahoma City at a tiny little Calvinistic church. And they said, the pastor's beginning a study of the Gospel of John, and he'll be studying the first few verses of John 1. Little did I know they'd been praying for me because they knew I was lost as a goose. And so they were praying that the Lord would use this. So I said, well, as long as we're done by about 8 o'clock, because I've got to get back home and get Sandy, because we've got to get on the lake. So as Bob Long, the pastor, began his study of John 1, he read the majestic prologue of the gospel where the apostle John clearly sets forth, you can't get out of the first three verses without hearing the deity of Christ. When John writes, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Can't be clearer than that. Well, I had no idea that Jesus was God. I'd never heard such a thing. I'd grown up in a church all my life that had an invitation every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening, and they told people to ask Jesus into their hearts, but they never taught anyone who Jesus was. Who should this object of faith be? So that morning on Memorial Day 1980, as a brilliant, unbelieving 20-year-old, I say that sarcastically, I wanted to argue with the pastor and tell him he was mistaken. Jesus is not God. So the pastor, Bob Long, graciously said, Carl, after everybody else leaves, could you stick around and let me buy you some biscuits and gravy at the truck stop next door? Well, who can pass up biscuits and gravy at a truck stop? So we had biscuits and gravy, and Bob 
grabbed napkins and he started drawing diagrams, diagrams about the deity and humanity of Christ, about double imputation of Christ's sins laid on us and our, uh, our Christ's righteousness given to us and our sin laid on him. And I finally, after about an hour and a half, I had to repent and say, I've been dead wrong for 20 years. Nobody, of course, comes out of the womb knowing and understanding truth. We come out of the womb suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And God's sovereignty, it's only in his sovereignty and his kindness and his mercy that that work of transformation he works in regeneration brings about radical change in our understanding, our belief, and our behavior. And so by the time I stood up that morning, had finished my coffee, I understood who Christ was. I had put my trust in the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of my own imagination. I'd believed the gospel, and I was a new creation. Because of my own personal history, I'm always excited about any opportunity to make clear who Christ is and to dissuade people from trusting in a Christ other than the Christ of the Bible because any other Jesus can't save. For the month of December, we're examining prophecies given by Isaiah. Prophecies given by Isaiah and fulfilled perfectly by Jesus of Nazareth. And when we speak about prophecies, I'm talking about predictive prophecies. By that I mean the authoritative declaration of specific events that will occur in the future. Now for those of you who haven't done a count, there are over 2,100 predictive prophecies in the Bible. Most of them have already been fulfilled. These are specific and detailed. They're not guesses or conjectures. Rather, they are the absolute accurate foretelling of events. Now last week, we heard Isaiah prophesy that the one to come would be called Wonderful and Counselor in Isaiah 9-6. We saw that that meant he would be called Wonderful and that he would be a wonder in his conception in life and death and resurrection and ascension. And he would be called Counselor in that he would be perfectly wise, pure, and sympathetic. But today, I hope you'll look at your copy of God's Word at Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, and keep your Bible open because I want to demonstrate some of our case. I'm going to be making a legal case this morning, some of our case, not only here but in other texts. Because what you'll see as we look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is we will see the clearest in the Old Testament, the bluntest identification of the deity of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is prophesying well over 600 years before the incarnation of Jesus. He's telling you who Jesus will be 600 years before the fact. How staggering would it be to us right now if someone were exactly foretelling events of today way back in the 1300s? You'd marvel. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. And because he's a prophet of God, a true prophet, every word he speaks is truth and comes to pass. And when he does this, Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, is giving hope to his fellow Israelites who are about to be carted off into Babylonian captivity. And he tells them, I know things look bad now, but a Redeemer is coming. And so as we prepare to delve into this word, let me encourage you to keep your copy of God's word open, that you may see the glory of Christ in his deity. Let's pray together. Our Father, we plead with you now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst, that since it is his task to shine the spotlight on Christ, we ask that you'd pour out the Spirit, lift up Christ in our midst, 
Give us a strong and saving faith in him. Deliver us from errors and fables and guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and the title that Jesus has given today, the prophecy as we are examining these prophetic titles, is Christ is called the Mighty God. Now, I want to take you on a tour of this term, mighty, because it, it rarely gets used, and when it does, it's pretty inaccurate. And so the word mighty is the Hebrew word, mighty God, is El Gabor, God the Strong. The word for the Hebrew word for mighty is the word gibor, just like Emmanuel, God with us. And so I want you to see what the Bible is trying to communicate when it says that this one who will come, we know him as the Lord Jesus Christ, is mighty. He's El Gabor. Keep one finger here and look back at First Chronicles 11. Several years ago, I did what I think was my favorite series on Sunday nights, and that was a series on the life of David. It will be my favorite series until this coming year when I have the liberty, God willing, to preach a series on the life of David's son, Solomon. But when we looked at this series on David, one of the things that's so unique about David, who was a, an astounding, brilliant leader of men, was he was a great judge of talent. He surrounded himself with Brilliant counselors, brilliant economists, and most of all, a force of men who have never been seen before or since. They would outdistance the Navy SEALs of today. I hope there are no Navy SEALs here who want to come up and punch me in the nose about that. But when you look at David's mighty men, it's the same term that's used in Isaiah. These are Gibor men, mighty men. Look at what we're told about them. In 1 Chronicles 11, verse 10, this is just getting a concept of what the Bible means by mighty. Now, these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him and his kingdom with all Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And so look at who some of those mighty men are. Look at verse 11. This is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Jashabim, the son of a Hachmanite. Chief of the captains, he lifted up his spear against 300, killed by him at one time. That's pretty Gabor, wouldn't you say? That's pretty mighty. 300 men. Like, that's better than Chuck Norris. I mean, this is amazing. Or think about another one of his mighty men. Look at Abishai in verse 20. We read, Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He had lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name against these three. Or then Beniah. Look at Beniah in verse 22. Beniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian's hand there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. Those are mighty men. These were guys who had a chest full of metals. Boy, little boys stood in awe as they walked down the street. They were Gabor. Mighty. It's the same word that's used here in 1 Chronicles 11 as is used as a prophecy of our king. Mighty is a battle word. It's a military term. 
It speaks of one who can overpower his enemies and crush them. Just how mighty, how gabor is our Christ? When the prophecy comes that he will be the mighty God, it means he will be the one who will be triumphant over the forces of evil and put them to shame. In Colossians 2, Paul talks about what our mighty God did. He said, he on the cross disarmed the demonic powers and made sport of them. Our Christ is so mighty that he plunders Satan's kingdom today. And he plucks out of Satan's kingdom, out of the domain of darkness. He chooses whomever he will, no matter how old or young or black or white or, or weak or strong. He plucks them out and snatches them from the possession of the evil one and brings them into the kingdom of his dear son. Our Christ is so mighty that we are told in Matthew 12 that he has bound the strong man, meaning the evil one. This has been prophesied since Genesis 3.15, the first occasion of the gospel where we are told that he would crush the serpent's head. How mighty is our Christ? Even more than just triumphing over the foes of evil, he has conquered the most weighty enemy. He's conquered death. He's got the power to lay down his life and pick it up again, he says. And then he's conquered the grave. This is the one. How mighty is he? He has, he tells us in Matthew 28, all power and authority in heaven and on earth. It's vital to know and understand this about Jesus, that he's not just mighty, it actually is bigger than that. He has the attribute of omnipotence, meaning all power. That's why he's frequently called in scripture the almighty. Omnipotence is essential to his being. It's absurd to think of our Christ without this attribute, that he's the mighty one, the omnipotent one. Because a savior who's limited in power is as repugnant as a savior limited in goodness or wisdom or justice. An almighty being who cannot do whatever he wills and accomplish whatever he pleases is an absurdity. That's what omnipotence is. The ability to do anything he pleases. That's why the psalmist writes about him prophetically in Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. Whatever he chooses, he does. One of my goals this morning is to deliver you from a pocket-sized Jesus. There are some of you who, who you walk around thinking and sometimes saying, well, God could never do that. Jesus could never do this. I have this difficult sin. He could never deliver me from that. My prodigal child is far, has strayed too far into the far country. He could never bring him home. My friend, our God can speak and galaxies leap into existence. Our God can triumph over the tomb. He healed every disease in Israel. He's the Almighty One. He is El Gabor. His limitless power can't be restrained or even frustrated by men or demons. Creatures desire things that they have not the power to perform, but not Christ. There is nothing that Jesus wants to do that he cannot do. Listen to what we are told by Daniel in his prophecy in Daniel 4. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? You can't restrain an El Gabor Savior. 
Now, a word on vocabulary. Look back at our text in Isaiah 9. Jesus is called mighty. This is a superlative. For those of you who weren't paying attention in eighth grade, a superlative is to be reserved for the greatest. But we toss around in our days, our language is actually very poor in usage and very loose. We toss around superlatives like footballs. The meal we just ate was stupendous. Really? A burger? Stupendous? That song on the radio was awesome and great. That was like the 900th time you've heard that song. Because the primary, the reason why we throw superlatives around so easy is because the primary focus of most educational models, pedagogical models today, is not to teach truth, but it is to build the self-esteem of the student. And so teachers praise children effusively for even attempting the most basic task. Walk into a kindergarten or first or second grade classroom, and what you will hear from teachers all day long is, you are awesome, you are brilliant. They throw superlatives at them if kids learn how to print their names sort of sideways like I did. But if everything is awesome, then nothing really is. If words like extraordinary and stupendous to describe laundry soap and tires, what words do we have left to describe our God? For people who are redeemed by Christ, words matter. Especially since our Jesus has told us, warning against Calling anyone, for example, a raka, a fool, who isn't. And telling us a day is coming, in Matthew chapter 12, when all of us will give an account for every idle word we have spoken. And so our God, our Jesus, must be described with more magnificence than a stake or a Rolling Stones tune. By the way, let me encourage you not to buy a ticket for this turn. All of the stones are in their 80s. It would be very sad to you to go watch Mick Jagger in a wheelchair try to perform. So your terms for Christ must be greater than the terms for your favorite rock star. This side of heaven, of course, even the most exalted language fails us. And we end up like Moses, who when he said in Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, always doing wonders. And so let me encourage you to think and speak biblically. When someone wants to ask you, tell me about this Jesus, tell them he's the mighty God. And I'm using that term biblically. He's El Gabor. There is nothing outside the, the range of his strength and his power. He can do anything he wants. But notice the rest of the title in Isaiah 9. Not only is he mighty, but he is God. And as I said, this is the clearest, bluntest identification of the Savior who will come as deity, as fully God of any place in the Old Testament. And so let me remind you, if anybody, when Isaiah is thinking about a Savior and a mediator, if anybody's going to be a fit Savior, they must meet at least these four qualifications. They must be God. Secondly, they must be a man in every sense of the word. They must be a descendant of Abraham's, of Jacob's, of David's. Third, they must be perfectly holy as a man. They can never sin, not once. And fourth, and this is astounding and, 
and Old Covenant Israel could hardly ever wrap their head around it. They must be God, they must be a man, they must be perfectly holy, and they must be God and man in one person. That's the, that's the goods that the Savior has to have. And what Isaiah is telling you is that the one he's foretelling over six year, 600 years before the incarnation, he has the goods. He fills the bill. And what I want to do for our remaining time in my first sermon of the day, what I want to do is I want to make a case to you. Because I know what, a, what an explosion in my own mind this was when the lights were turned on and I realized Jesus is God. I've not been trusting in the Jesus of the Bible. I've been trusting in some figment of my own imagination, but he's certainly not the Jesus of the Bible. I want to make a case. I want to convince you. If maybe you're just barely hanging on, say, I, I know that's what our creed says, but really, Carl, you're going to say this Jesus who we see in such weakness, who's on the cross and won't come down. He's God? Let me give you six lines of evidence today. Consider this apologetics. The first point of my case is, Scripture repeatedly calls Jesus God. Perhaps you don't know that because you haven't read widely enough. But the first point I want us to see is, Scripture repeatedly calls Jesus God. The same Isaiah who we're reading of in Isaiah 9, just two chapters before in Isaiah 7, 14, wrote, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated means God with us. Or think of the words I just told you that led to my own conversion in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Or think of Paul's testimony in Romans 9. Paul is agonizing over the fact that so few of his Jewish countrymen are coming to faith in Christ. And so Paul says with tears in Romans 9, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom are given the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. He is over all. He is the eternally blessed God. Or think of what Thomas said in that upper room a week after the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus came into the room and Thomas reached out and then dropped to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Scripture's not shy about telling us. It tells us over and over again that the Jesus of the Bible is God. Second point of our case, Jesus possesses all the attributes of God. For example, the Bible repeatedly tells us that he's eternal. In Micah 5, we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the town where Jesus would be born, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In other words, the prophet Micah is saying, This one who will be the Savior, he's the eternal God. He has the attribute of eternality. He never had a beginning, and no, he will never have an end. But that's not the only attribute Jesus displays that proves he's God. He's immutable, meaning he never changes. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You'll fold them up. They'll all be changed. But you are the same forever. Our Jesus never changes. He hates unrighteousness. The same things that we see him hating in the scripture, whether it be idolatry, sexual immorality, homosexuality, fornication, covetousness. He hated them 4,000 years ago. He hates them now. He's unchanging. He's immutable. Another attribute that demonstrates that he's God, he's omniscient. You know what omniscient is. It means that that God has never learned one thing. He has always known everything. If there were one fact, one random little molecule of a fact hanging out there in the solar system that God didn't know and then he became aware of, you'd have to say, well, he's not worth my trust. Because the only one who's the only being who's worth of my worship and trust is one who knows all things. Our God has never learned one thing. Listen to what we're told about our Jesus, that he's omniscient. In John 21, Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he'd said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Again, our superlative, we say that all the time. Oh, he knows everything. He's a know-it-all. No, he's just a smart aleck. The only person who knows it all is the Lord Jesus. He's omniscient. Or think about the greater demonstration of our Christ's omniscience, thus proving he's God. In Luke chapter 6, we read, The scribes and Pharisees watched Jesus closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But Jesus knew their thoughts. You don't know the thoughts of anyone in this room right now. You barely know your own thoughts. But you don't know the thoughts of anyone. You look at your child and they look so sweet and angelic. And right now your four-year-old is plotting something devious. You don't know what's in their mind. Because you're not omniscient. But our Jesus is. A third line of evidence that proves he's God. We said, scripture repeatedly calls Jesus God. Jesus possesses the attributes of God. Third, proof And I want you to be overwhelmed with the proofs that you'll have to wave the white flag and say, I give, I see it. Jesus is God. I must put my trust in that Jesus. Third line of evidence, Jesus works, show he is God. Listen to what we're told in John 1, 3. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. What we are specifically told in the New Testament is the agent of the Trinity, the person of the Godhead, who was the speaker and spoke and worlds leaped into existence, was Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. But not only does he show he's God because of his mighty work of creation, he shows he's God because he has the ability to raise the dead. In John 5, 21, Jesus says, As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And he demonstrated that in John chapter 11 when he stood outside the grave of Lazarus. And you you know that Lazarus had been so many dead so many days that the old King James said, He stinketh. 
That's my favorite word of Elizabethan English. You can say that to your children at some point. Well, Jesus shows he's God by raising up this man who had been dead for several days. His works show that he's God. Or if those don't, grab a hold of your, your imagination. Realize this. His works of commanding nature show he's God. In Matthew chapter 8, we're treated to the event. We're told Jesus got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, and the boat was covered with waves. But Jesus was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O men of little faith? He arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And then there was a great calm. And so the men in the boat marveled, saying, Who can this be? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who indeed? His works show he is God. But there's more. Again, I'm trying to give you so many proofs that you have to say, Carl, I see it. The lights are coming on for me. We've said that Jesus is God, and we know that because Scripture repeatedly calls him God. Second, he possesses all the attributes of God. Third, his works show that he's God. Fourth, Jesus receives worship, worship that is due to God alone. It's fascinating how, whether it's Paul or John or Barnabas in the New Testament, anytime somebody shows the least bit of hint or inclination towards worshiping them, speaking in that way, giving them exalted titles, falling down before them, all of them in embarrassment and, and just brokenhearted and say, get up, we're men just like you. Reserve your worship for one person the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what happened after Jesus calmed the winds and the waves. We're told in Matthew's account where we read those in the boat came and worshiped him and said, truly you're the son of God. Jesus demands the same honor in worship as the father. We're told in John 5, the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son that all should honor and worship the son Just as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. He even claimed to be Lord of a day. When he says in Mark chapter 2, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. A fifth line of evidence that would demonstrate to you that Jesus is God and worthy of your trust as such is repeatedly we are told in the scriptures that he is absolutely equal in every respect with the Father. That's why Jesus said these words in John 10. He said, I and my Father are one. And his hearers knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew he was claiming absolute equality. And so we're told the Jews took up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them saying, many good works I've shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? They answered him saying, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man Make yourself out to be God. Jesus just overtly told you that he's God and he's equal to the Father. That's why Jesus in the Great Commission, just before he ascends to heaven, says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a title of absolute equality. Well, the sixth line of evidence that demonstrates that our Jesus is God is even the demons know this and confess it. 
Right now, there are people in this room who aren't buying it, who say, no, I, I need more evidence. My friends, the demons surpass you because they know. They know, and they even confess that Jesus is God. We're told in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching on their Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. There was a man in the synagogue who had spirits of an unclean demon. And this man cried out with a loud voice. Those the demons who were infesting him spoke. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Even the demons agree and say, Carl, tell us something we don't know. We know that Jesus is God. How do we apply this word? I want you to think right now about coming to the table in just a few minutes. Because the Jesus that will be offered to you is the Jesus who is God. Several applications. The first is, knowing that this Jesus is God, you should tremble before him. In Psalm 2, the psalmist gives counsel even to the the rulers of nations and says, here is what is wise behavior. If it's wise for rulers, how much more is it wise for the ruled? The counsel that the psalmist gives is tremble before him. To defy one so mighty, who is so gibor, is insanity. I would tell you by way of application again, One who is so mighty can give you aid and power in your struggles. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul understood that Jesus was the mighty God. He was the El Gabor. And so when he thought about things that were difficult, he said, but I have El Gabor to strengthen me. And he has all power. He's the one who can speak and bring into being solar systems. One who is so mighty can as well keep you from stumbling and falling. So many here worry about falling away or being snatched away. But one who is El Gabor can hold you up. He can keep you from stumbling and falling. Another application, one who is so mighty demands your worship, your most zealous worship. Because we see, uh, as we look forward to one of the throne scenes in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 4, who is seated on the throne? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is everyone worshiping? They're gazing at Christ. Angels and creatures, they're all worshiping him. And so, believer, let me tell you, you will praise Christ, gathered with all the saints for his power and might. Intelligence and power are why we respect and honor creatures. If they can create something marvelous, one of our fellow sinful fallen creatures, whether it be an engine or a structure or whatever, we honor them for their skill. If they can lift 800 pounds or hit a baseball 500 feet, we cheer them wildly. How much more should we reverence and worship the one who can melt mountains? Another application. The might of Christ, the Gabor of Christ, should be your reassurance and comfort when others assault and attack you. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then I have to say this. There are people right now in this room today who are struggling against temptation. Some of you not struggled, struggling anymore. You just waved the white flag and 
let temptations dominate you. And you said, I'm just not strong enough. There is no help or assistance out there for me. I have to succumb to these, these awful things. My friend, listen to who this is being spoken of in 1 Corinthians 10. He, El Gabor, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will make the way of escape. That's how mighty a Savior you have. He can, he can work all things together to open a door for you to escape from the temptations you're dealing with right now. Another application, you should pray for others to have their eyes open so that they would, and this is Pauline. Paul uses, the, he prays this prayer for the church in Ephesus. He says, I'm praying for you that you would see the surpassing greatness of his power. When you pray, when you go into your closet and pray, when you gather with us on Wednesday night to pray, when we pray from this pulpit or in Sunday school classes, this is how we should be praying for this congregation, just like Paul did for the Ephesian church, that we would see the surpassing greatness of his power and put away all impotent notions of Jesus. And then, by way of application, especially at this season, you should be amazed all over again that the almighty second person of the Trinity would step down and be clothed in weak flesh, the one who spoke the universe into being and upholds it by the word of his power, became so weak that he would not even pick up a rattle. Why? Because of his love for sinners like you and I. The Christian can trust such a Christ. He's worthy of your greatest confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If Christ were weak and had a limit to his strength, we might despair. But since he's El Gabor, since he's the mighty God, and seeing that he's clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer. No need is too great for him to supply. No passion is too strong for him to subdue. No temptation is too powerful for him to deliver from. And no sorrow or loneliness is too deep for him to relieve. He's the almighty God. It's this Jesus. It's this Jesus that we meet now at the table. Let's pray together. Oh God, you're mighty in battle. A great warrior who triumphs over all your enemies. You work all things after the counsel of your own will. You cause all things to work together for our good. All things are from you by your decree. All things are through you by your providential hand, and all things are to you for your glory. No one can resist your hand. You never grow weary, and you can do whatever you please. And so now, Lord, we ask that our faith in you would be strengthened by this sacrament, this, this meal that you've given to strengthen our faith. Give us faith to trust your word and to lean hard on Christ alone. We pray in the name of Jesus. Our